everyone, and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast. And today I'm joined by writer Linda Cracknell. Hello, Linda. Hello. Thank you and for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. And we're here to talk mainly about your new novel, The Other Side of Stone, uh, which I've seen described as a novella elsewhere. How do you think of it? <laughs> it's also been described as a collection of stories. So um, <laughs> I think the jury's really out about what the form is. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a conundrum, I think, what it is. Um, it's short story-like um, in, in the sense that there's ca different characters that appear in their own story between 1831 and 2019, all in connection with a Perthshire woolen mill. Um, but what makes it a little bit less like a, a collection of of stories is there's, there's one character whose story um, comes up several, several times and um, she's pretty central. So I think without her, the other stories wouldn't completely make sense. Yeah, I think so. I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, I think that's really interesting in itself because it is. Uh, I didn't think when I read it, I didn't think of it as a novella and I didn't think of it as separate stories although you're absolutely right they could be read as separate stories should you want to do that um but was so the, in terms of the structure does it come after you've decided what stories to tell or did you kind of have an idea that this is how you wanted to tell these stories uh, no this uh, this um this it's been very sort of incremental how this book has come about and um I don't think I'm letting you into any big secret if I say I actually started it as a novel 20 years ago. Ah. Um, and it was going to be something quite different. It was mainly the story from 2006, which is about a young male architect who buys um, a derelict industrial building and converts it into quite kind of flashy flats, but decides to take one for himself and his wife. Yeah. And... Um, it, I knew when I started writing that that they were they were initially my main characters, but that something had happened in the past in that building that was going to make itself felt on their current lives. And actually, I came across that thing um, by accident, and that kind of took over. So that created a voice in two thousand and thirteen. 14, which, sorry, 1913-14, which demanded to be written. And then I probably abandoned that as a novel around 2006. And, but I couldn't quite leave behind the context of the, of the building and all the imaginative work I'd done in creating that. So over the years, I've imagined other characters and other scenarios, which still link to that building um, even if it's a bit tangential, and um, help to tell the wider story. So I can't pretend that it was planned. And um, if if it does make a satisfying whole, which is what people seem to be saying, it's, um, I guess, you know, as a writer, you have to trust your intuition quite a lot. And I guess there was some of that going on in the background to, to, to make it. It was only fairly recently I actually thought about putting all the stories together and seeing if that would make a book. That's really interesting because 
the the mill is a kind of character in its own right uh, and to know that you um and i think by the time you get to those later um stories and they're being turned into flats it's almost it almost feels to me like a haunted building you know it's got this past so it's really interesting that actually you you started at the end and worked you know backwards to where this past began is that how you think of it as a kind of its own character I do, yes. Um, yes, I do. And I also think of it as a kind of um, kind of casket of memories of all the people that have had something to do with it, you know, so that inevitably it's permeated with the lives that have gone before that have had something to do with it and they've all affected it in some way, some more than others. Um, so it is, it's a kind of um, memory repository and I think it stops short of being supernatural I don't think it is quite a ghost no. story but um, I did intend there to be a sort of feeling of a, a reverberation of things having happened in associated with that building. I, I read it as not supernatural you're right but something eerie in the sense that this is a building that clearly has an effect on the people on some of the people that come into contact with it quite a profound effect actually on some of them. Yes, um, and it's um, yeah they do they behave differently towards it, and some are more affectionate than others. And Catherine, who's the character who repeats, it's it sort of starts off being her friend because she speaks to it, and yeah. she's pretty lonely in this village that she's um, arrived arrived in as a new wife of a weaver who's working in the mill. And um, so she's actually not able to work herself, although she's come from a background in the cotton industry and uh, around Paisley. Um, and so actually she spends a lot of time sitting kind of in conversation, rather a one-way conversation with with the face of the building, which she's not permitted to enter. Actually, yeah. Because her husband's in there working. And um, it starts off with her being almost like a friend, you know, that she can confide in and joke with. But by the end, she's, um, they're pretty much enemies, I think. Yeah, it's almost like her um, uh, husband is almost having an affair and it's with the building. Or it's Lisa, that's the, that's the, the, he has changed. That's the story I have to say that really kind of stayed with me the longest because I don't want to give anything away. But you have a kind of backstory to um, particularly um, how they shared ideals when they were in Glasgow in particular at that time. And they seem to share ideals at least. And then how the husband almost betrays those as his situation changes. And there is a distinct sense of betrayal, I think, with um, the, the central character, the narrator. Yes, I think um, I think I would call it. A, she certainly sees it herself as a betrayal, and um, you know they've shared this kind of socialist vision when they were um, back on the west coast. You know they were part, very much part of that period of intense industrial unrest, nineteen ten to fourteen, and um, you know they took great pleasure in parading with others on May Day and. Um, and he was fully behind women's, women's suffrage. Yeah. But once they were married and they were settled in the village that he came from with all his kind of family around him, you know, he wanted his meal on the table every night. And not only that, but this mill being in Highland Perthshire was a bit separate from any other mills. And so the workers weren't necessarily aware 
of all the industrial unrest going on in the textile industry elsewhere. And they tended to be quite, these isolated mills tended to be quite family orientated, quite paternalistic. So when he's offered the job of foreman, he takes it. And then he's in the management and there's no question of him sporting strike action or anything like that. And so she definitely thinks he's lost his kind of backbone. Um, and, uh, you know, he's very reluctant for her to take any kind of work and starts being feeling embarrassed by the action that she takes um, in, in, in the cause that she's so passionate about for women's suffrage. And... What inspired the initial idea? What inspired the, the the idea that this mill had these stories to tell, or at least one initial story to tell? Well, hmm. I think that I've, I've, I'm always very fascinated by derelict buildings, particularly industrial ones. And my first job after leaving university was was in a was in a woolen mill in Devon, actually, oh. that had been. Um, it, had, it had finished its days quite late, really, for the woolen industry. Um, and it had been left with these, you know, vast halls. And rather like the, the, the mill in my, in my book, it was in a very small village, but a huge building in a small village. So it sort of eclipsed lots of other things in the village. Um, but it was left with, um, you know, these vast halls of, black machinery and the smell of lanolin and the steam engine and the water wheel and you know really it was very archaic and so I, I worked in converting with others um, this huge building to be a working museum which is still going actually so that's rather pleasing and um, so I had that experience and I think my initial idea when I first had the um, architect character I actually, um, where I, I live in Perthshire, there's um, a whole system of hydroelectric schemes, as you'll know, and some of the buildings associated with them are, are really beautiful and fascinating. Yeah. And I, I had in my mind at first that it might be one of those. And then I thought, oh, well, actually, it makes a lot more sense if it's you know, part of the textile industry, and I know something about that. And actually, I live in Aberfeldy, and there is a small, a much smaller um, than in my story, uh, Tweed Mill, which is still running here um, in, a, in, a, in a very small way, way but it, they do still weave tweed. So um, I had that as a kind of reference point. So I knew it was um, credible that there could have been an isolated Tweed Mill in a, in a small village in, in Perthshire. So then when you start decide that you're going to tell other stories, is that a case of then going, um, finding the stories to tell and then researching them? I mean, how does it then work? Well, um, the, the, the Catherine, the, the kind of suffragette story was a complete accident. And it was because I was looking for um, a background of industrial unrest. Um, and I, I was looking at uh, back copies of the Perthshire Advertiser and of course, that period, 1910 to 14, quickly came up as, as when there was massive industrial unrest all over Perthshire. It was the, you know, the painters and the dyers and the plumbers and the bakers were, were all threatening strike or out on strike. Yeah. And then amongst uh, all these headlines and also, um, you know, great banner headlines of invitations for people to move to Canada, where there would be great prospects job-wise, uh, I found a story about... Um, 
well, it wasn't a story, it was true, but it was uh, a, a man in the village of Kinloch Ranach um, who was in court and he was quite, a, you know, he had a lonely kind of job, but he was in court suing his wife for divorce because she'd become a suffragette. Wow. And I, I, was, I found this really fascinating. And, um, you know, there were complaints that she'd stopped cooking his meals. She started reading Tolstoy. She'd, you know, she'd become a suffragette and was always off at meetings. And then she'd moved out with the children. And the last thing she did was she went to Canada. And so he was actually in court while she was away in Canada trying to get his divorce. And um, it all, the, the conflict between them had arisen because she'd wanted to have her own work. And, and you know, obviously that was, that was quite difficult then as a married woman because you had to have your husband's permission and he'd refused to give it. So um, that was what prompted the conflict. And so I took that idea uh, for Catherine as well, that she's determined that she's going to become a nurse. And she's going to do her training, but she needs her husband's signature. Yeah. And uh, she's got to wait. He makes her wait. <laughs> so the, it, it's, it's fascinating that um, you, you settled on these three stories. Were you ever tempted to tell more? Because I'm guessing you've got this you, you wide expanse of time, you know, where you thought, well, maybe there could be something in the 50s or the 60s or, you know, were you happy then with what you had? Yes, I was, actually. And I've, I've sort of wondered about that a bit because there are some big gaps. Um, so, you know, we start in 1831 with the stonemason uh, actually putting the dedication stone above the, above the main door. And we finish in 2019 when, well, let's say there's not as much mill as there was. Um, and, but, but there are clusters date-wise of the stories which really focus around the demise of the of the woolen industry. So the last tweed is yeah. woven in 1990, um, and things kind of stagger to a, a halt after that. Um, but actually, it felt that those were the stories I wanted to tell, and I think they came very naturally. Um, they they did take research, but only you know they they kind of the idea for them arose not so much from the research as Catherine's story did, but just more that they wanted, to, that was a period in the history of the mill that wanted to be told. And um, so I didn't kind of go through and think, oh, I better have one in um, um, the late 19th century or, or whatever, or in the 1940s. I, I, it wasn't how it came about. Um, and I do, I suppose I'm expecting quite a lot of the reader because you know, as is typical in short stories, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot that's not written. Yeah. So the reader's always having to work quite hard to fill in the gaps. But in this case, they're also having to fill in the gaps between the stories. Yeah. So it takes quite an, you know, I'm asking the reader to use quite a lot of imagination themselves. Yeah, but how it's got, the mill's got from one point to the next point where we meet it. But it, it does seem to me, from what I've read of yours, is that, place uh, has got as much importance, sometimes if not more than the people, that you're interested in the stories that are there and the stories that you don't tell, but there's a sense that there are other stories happening. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think, well, place is, is central um, to my writing and, and so is memory. And in my last book was about walking and it was a non-fiction book, which was um, about walking 
in in the footsteps of either myself or previous um, travellers along the path for some purpose and finding that the story, there was a sort of story underfoot, if you like, in the places that that particular route went through. And so I suppose I'm often feeling that sense of retrieving memory from being in a particular place. Um, so place is usually, is that true? It's usually quite a strong starting point. My last novel, Call of the Undertow, was set in, um, in coastal Caithness, and that was intimately associated with a particular place and my exploration of it. That's um, what I was thinking of. I think that's the last uh, thing I've, I've read of yours, and it, it was about mapping and cartography, and so there was not just the physical, but also, as you said, maybe the memory that had yet to be uncovered in it. Yes, yeah, I think... Uh, that is really important and and all the kind of you know an awful lot of the framework of that story actually did arise from things that i you know i found along the way in that particular small patch you know there was a, there was a um some amazing folk tales and there were all sorts of nooks and crannies and all sorts of things that you could sort of look at and think oh, what's going on there no. <laughs> um including sand being removed from the dunes and that kind of thing I think I remember reading about you that you you like to get out there. You like to be on the land and, you know, walking and discovering for your you know, It's not just people have this idea of a writer that they're behind a keyboard and, you know, barely see the sun. But that's not you. You like to actually go out there and kind of physically interact with what you're going to write about. Yes, I do. I'm, I'm a, yeah, I can't really write without walking. And um, it's partly a, a sort of, you know, part of the kind of mental. Yes. Um, refreshment and digestion and partly observation you know in some cases as I say I have made the, the walking into part of the writing but 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 mostly it's to do with the kind of state of mind that you're in when you when you walk and how you're kind of half focused on what you're the place that you're in and half focused on what's going on in your mind and somehow the the, the cadence of that seems to be good for my imagination. Uh, I know lots of writers here, similar, you know, it's, it's so, kind of part of the toolkit, really. As an aside, since this past year, when we've all been doing pretty much nothing but walking or staying inside, have you found that things have changed for you in terms of that, or has it just been business as usual? Um, business as usual, but perhaps um, at times, uh, particularly in the first lockdown, I felt I suddenly an awful lot of my freelance work was cancelled. Yeah. And so I did have a sense of having more time. I, I have to say that that hasn't sustained, you know, I don't feel, you know, it kind of the freelance work came back again, fortunately. Yeah. Um, but in, in that period, I probably walked further in my own local area and I discovered places I'd never been to and I've lived here for um 26 years or something um so you know that was quite surprising that there were still places I could discover or you know and I kind of set myself sometimes not always but you know that I had to try out one new path on every walk you know just try something slightly different and um, so, yeah, so I think I probably went a bit further. You know, I always give myself at least an hour a day walking, but I probably spent more than an hour a day during yeah. that period. And ideally, I would use more than an hour a day. And um, yeah. did that bring new stories to you or was it just a case of actually I'm doing this 
uh, I mean, I guess you don't go walking with the idea that there will be a new story every time, but were you you're discovering new places and perhaps um, walking more often even than before? Were there new stories that kind of came to you? Well, none, none, nothing's happened yet. However, um, I'm quite interested in a couple of ruined villages that I discovered. And um, there's an area um, just up the hill from the town that I've never really explored. And the reason that I've never explored it is because it's covered in plantation forestry, which I don't like very much. Right. Because, you, you know, you, it's a bit boring. You can't see out and you're on a track. And, but actually, I've started to find it quite interesting because if you, instead of following the tracks, if you follow the burns and the kind of, which, which are all tributaries of um, the Monas burn, which goes through the burks of Aberfeldy, um, there are these lovely corridors of, of relatively untouched land, which won't have been touched since those plantations were, were put in probably in the 50s. Yeah. Um, and so they've, they're, they're lovely kind of corridors of um, native trees and tumbling water and so on. And I have the impression that apart from me, it's mainly sort of deer and rabbits who are, who are in these places. So I found that really interesting. And I, I, I don't know whether that's going to lead to some writing, but I think it might do. Yeah, it feels. And the other thing is that when you get into the plantation, um, what I hadn't realized before is that there were areas that were, were left unplanted um, because there were cultural remains so right. a village or, or whatever. And whether it was out of architect, archaeological sensitivity or just because it was too difficult to, you know, plough it up to, to plant trees, I don't know. But they're quite spooky, actually. You know, you get these clearings and then there's, you know, the clear outlines of houses and um, uh, lime kilns and bits and pieces. So that's quite fascinated me. And I, as I say, I'm not sure yet what that might lead to, but um, I've got very interested in these kind of, hidden ways and hidden tributaries that are under the forest. It's a bit like being under the sea or something. That idea of um, Scotland in particular having these hidden stories or hidden uh, places, you know, and there are lots of them, I think that comes through strongly in the other side of stone as well, because initially people might, I mean, I've driven through Perth many, many times, and you do see these mills, many of them are probably now, you know, flats and things like that. But to look at them and say, what's the story? What's the hidden story under there? I think it's quite very interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, especially if it's derelict. I, I don't know, it has a great appeal to me for some reason. I know it's pitiful, really, because, you know, it's much nicer if they're, if they're um, in use. But there's something about um, abandoned buildings, which is, uh, which is a very fascinating um, and yeah, the sadness about them as well. So is that what it's about? That, that the, the kind of stories that were there are no longer going to be told, that that, that building is kind of kept secrets and then you do you decide perhaps what those stories are. Is, is that something? I'm just wondering yes, why inadvertently. those buildings are so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that, the, you know, the other side of stone wasn't based on any real building. I invented it and plunked it in a fictional village, which I'm not, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not, it's a bit further north than where I live, but it, it's not a village that exactly exists. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think I started more from the angle of looking at this architect and thinking what would a, you know, 
a young ambitious architect take as his project? What would he? What kind of building would would appeal to him? Something that he could look heroic by recovering it from imminent collapse. Yeah. And um, and so that was kind of that was where the that was where the first seed of it was really was more in the kind of somebody with the idea that they could make a bit of a splash by recovering a building like that without having any respect i suppose for what it had been yeah that dangers might that might bring that's what i think i meant about the eerie aspect of it because it read to me as though the building rebels against this 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 attempt to kind of um abuse it i suppose or take advantage of it is probably the better way of doing it i am um, at the beginning we asked you know kind of how to describe uh, the novel and you said well some people have said it's this some people have said it's other and it made me think about how you approach publishers with do you have to pitch an idea to a publisher uh, like someone might for a film or a television show um i'm just interested in the kind of practicalities of that well, you, you do pitch, yes, because, you know, you, you're, the normal way of submitting is, is to send, depending on what they want, either the whole manuscript or part of it with a synopsis, and the synopsis is the selling instrument, really, which um, has got to try and define it. And, um, you know, this book is published by a very new publisher, Taproot Press, yeah. who, God love them, were asking for unusual forms. So <laughs> I think I was very lucky there because they got it. Um and, um, you know, I'd say in the past, it's been very difficult to find publishers who want collections of short stories. You know, it's, it's, um, it's easier to get individual short stories published, but collections, you're often told that they don't sell. Yeah. And um, uh, there's a sort of, it's a strange one because um, people say that they like short stories, but then bookshops, say that people don't want to buy them so yeah. um so a collection of short stories is is a difficult thing to sell however I, I do think if there's a if they're linked in some way they immediately have a bit more appeal because they can almost appear to be a uh, something else I was going to say a way to do it to make it look like a novel. I have to yeah. say and I do think there are some things which are called novels which appear as um which are, are sold as um, and it's sold as novels, but when you really get to them, they're more like collections of linked stories. I would say that uh, train spotting is a collection of short stories. Mm. Move together, mm. you know. That's that would be my argument. Mm. For that. I think mm. the design of the book is absolutely gorgeous. I have to say, they've done a lovely Isn't job. Lovely, yeah. Uh, and even yeah. down to the kind of handwritten dates and titles on the thing, it's it's it again. It makes it feel, you know. Yeah, like, it's like, my handwriting, by the way. Ah. Very nice handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is rather a special touch. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting you say that they were looking for um, unusual forms because I've written down, well, with the idea of pitching to other publishers in mind, that your writing doesn't fit kind of easy categorization. I think that's fair to say. You know, there's kind of, there's, a there's often a natural aspect to it, but then there's often a kind of puzzle aspect to it as well. And there's, you know, it's um, at a time when people are often looking to fit writers or anyone into kind of neat boxes. Um, it's quite, I think, you know, some of the best writers are the ones that don't. I think that's quite a nice thing. Have you ever felt- I suppose the other thing is, 
Yeah, on you go, sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say, I suppose uh, um, the other thing is that as a writer, you want to be continually developing. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't necessarily want to produce um, something that was a bit like the other one, yeah. even though, you know, so I suppose you're never going to have, well, I probably will never have huge departures because I kind of know roughly what my territory is. But it would be nice to think that there is a sort of development in terms of the different kinds of way you might treat your subject matter. Um, I did go on a songwriting course um, yeah. just uh, 18 months ago or so, which I, I have to say I've not done anything with it, with it. But I thought, you know, there's these other forms that are out there, which could be really fun, you know, and I had a, a marvellous introduction to songwriting with a lot of very talented people who were a bit scary. <laughs> they, were, they weren't scary, I was scared, they weren't scary. And um, yeah, so, you know, uh, there's so many forms that are, um, I, you know, you want to feel that you're learning, you know, and so um, I'd like to think that I, I'm expanding my repertoire rather than repeating, if you like. And you know, you mentioned earlier on that your your last book was was nonfiction. Do you um, decide when you sit down like, what I'm going to write today is nonfiction, or do you start with something that maybe could be um, fiction, and you think, oh no, this is this is not what this is? How does that work? Well, with the, with the book about walking, doubling back. Um, I think I just realized at some point that I was very interested in walking in, in sort of memory footsteps and that I want I, that lent itself for that particular project to nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So rather than the walking being a tool for writing, it would actually become the subject matter. And I thought of it initially, I suppose, as travel writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it, it isn't quite travel writing because there's quite, it's quite, uh, there's quite a lot of memoir in it, really. It's not only my own memories, but there's quite a lot of my own memories in it. And, um, so I suppose you could say it's a walking memoir. Um, and just now I'm writing about, um, my seafaring ancestry oh. and trying to work out what that means to me. So that's nonfiction as well, but it's not to say that these things may not reappear in some other, mm -hmm. In some other form of fiction, but I think that that may take a little longer to digest. So the book about your seafaring, it's your family's past, is that what it is? Yeah, through um through my sort of my mother's my mother's mother's line. Um the the the, the family came from one small town in, in Devon on the north coast of Devon where they'd been seafarers for centuries and the surname was Drake and uh, okay. there was a Francis in every, <laughs> in every group of siblings, male and female, I should say. Um, uh, whether, whether there's a real connection back to himself, I'm not sure. But um, anyway, I, I've got more and more interested in this and also sort of aware of my own relationship to the sea, which particularly during lockdown, I absolutely longed to be at the sea right. because I couldn't get there and um, realized that that's a sort of very strong tug, even though I've not really had a great life. And, you know, I've been on boats and sailed and stuff, mm -hmm. but not, hasn't been a major part of my life. Um, and then, so I've just been finding out more about this 
particularly late 19th and early 20th century, um, the family had small, relatively small tall ships, you'd call them, catches, which were doing very ordinary job, you know, that um, nowadays is done mostly on roads and railways, taking cargo around Britain. And um, it was so mundane in the way that trucks on the road are now Mm. that nobody took any notice of it as being... uh, anything worth preserving. So there's actually, um, which I've been able to, um, which I've been able to sail on because it's, it's used as a sort of holiday ship, if you like. And um, so it's a bit of, um, it's again, it's a bit of a mixture of um, memoir and social history and digging about in my past, in my family's past to try and work out who's who. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And have you any thoughts about future fiction or at the moment, is it all about the other side of stone? Um, well, I have another novel, which is um, cooked, I think, <laughs> but um, not, not yet in right. the hands of a publisher. Um, but I am itching to get back to writing some more fiction, actually. It does feel um, there's a particular way of noticing things, which when I do it, I think, oh, that's asking to be fiction. And I've noticed that that's just been starting to happen recently, so I mm-hmm. think it must be time to start thinking about what comes next that's really interesting it feels like uh, after a while you have to kind of scratch the itch and say you know it's time to write stories again uh, well, yeah, Linda, I think I think I am a fiction writer <laughs> but Linda thank you so much for having a chat with me today it's been an absolute pleasure well thank you very much for having me enjoyed it oh good good and we'll be back soon with somebody completely different cheers Thank you.